Welcome back, True Believers. I'm Thomas Brando Greenman, and you're listening to the You're Not My Father podcast. Everyone could use a little fatherly advice, no matter what your age is. So we're here to provide that advice, wisdom, humor, motivation, and inspiration to help you live a better life. So without further ado, let's do this. Welcome to the first episode of season four. For returning or new listeners, we're changing up the format for this season and sticking with the theme of inspiration. We'll be asking the question, what inspires us and why? We'll also get into some of the things that have inspired me throughout my life and why those things are important to me. We'll be delving into some of the many great things that life has to offer. Some important things to note. We'll be moving to a bi-weekly episode release for this season your fingers crossed but we'll have double the time in each episode so get ready for that longer format and so for our first episode on inspiration we'll be talking about music and why it's important not to just me but to most of the world we'll kind of put our toes a little bit into the history of music and contemplate why it might just be essential for some people ironically this first episode about inspiration was lacking a lot of inspiration Coming out of a hard run of weekly episodes for several months, then summer showing up, and a lot of other personal things that have kind of happened, I've kind of had to pull the reins back on podcasting to focus more on life, more than talking about it. So finding the inner fire to do this podcast again was a bit of a challenge. It wasn't that the fire had gone out, but it kind of mellowed and became more of an ember, and other things kind of came to the forefront. And summers in Alaska are all about getting outside and doing things because winter doesn't afford the same type of things. But as they say, the beat goes on. So brief history of music. I'm not going to bore you. But historically, music to humans started very early on from what we can tell. From what some Wikipedia articles tells me, prehistoric music can only be theorized based on findings from Paleolithic archaeology sites. Flutes are often discovered, carved from bones in which lateral holes have been pierced. These are thought to have been blown at one end like the Japanese shukachi, if I said that right. The Dvijaj babe flute, which also I probably mangled, is carved from a cave bear femur and is thought to be 40,000 years old. Though these are considerable debate uh, going around whether these are truly musical instruments or an object formed by animals. Some of these instruments, such as the seven-hole flute and various different types of stringed instruments, such as the Raman Hatha, have been recovered from the Indus Valley Civilization Archaeological Sites. So India has one of the oldest musical traditions in the world. And references to Indian classical music, Marga, are found in the Vedas, ancient scriptures of the Hindu tradition, 
The earliest and largest collections of prehistorical music instruments were found in China and dated between 7,000 and 6,600 BC. The Hurrian hymn to Nikol, found on clay tablets that date back to approximately 1400 BC, is the oldest surviving notated work of music. And it's interesting to note that Wikipedia doesn't make mention of percussion instruments like drums until the ancient Egyptian Middle Kingdom around 2055 BC. I suspect that percussion instruments, like sticks being hit on a log, clapping, or another similar ways of producing a beat, were probably some of the first music besides singing. I don't know, that's an uneducated guess. Um, well, maybe a little educated. Uh, bird calls and other animal no noises surely inspired ancient people, probably in the beginning as a hunting method to lure them in, or were probably imitated from other noises in the world or environment. So whatever these were, it's impossible to say since they predated the earliest forms of communication, but it would take a lot longer for music to be codified and turned into something similar to what we would recognize today. Now, the rest of music history is mostly period and places in the world and time. Egypt, Asia, Africa, Europe, and so on. And I'm not going to deep dive into those. Uh, but I bring up the ancient roots as a consideration to, and forgive the pun, why does music resonate with us? I suspect that it's most basic. The rhythm of life isn't an instrument that's played, but one that's literally inside of us. And that's the human heart. You see, in the womb, we are exposed to the steady rhythm of our mother's heart. It's calming for us to hear, much in the way that a cat gently purring brings some peace to some. And that same heartbeat we can hear in our ears when we're excited or scared. And we can feel it in our chest. Think of a drum as being a similar heart, pounding out emotions, slow and steady and calm or fast and loud. We're running, rapid and heavy. We are scared. And I can imagine the first storyteller sitting around a fire, beating on a log for emphasis, and that noise bringing new heights and dimensions to the story. And so from what we can gather, early history is full of references to music, not just being a solo endeavor, but one that involved groups and musical instruments, sometimes the same, other times different ones. Whatever the case, music appeared to be something that was meant to be shared with others, either in the playing aspect or one of listening. Now, we've got biblical accounts of music that are in the middle of major events. If you look at the Bible, the Battle of Jericho, where the walls of Jericho fell after, the Israelites marched around the city wall once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day and then blew their trumpets and the walls fell. We have stories of feasts where music is played to enhance the guest's pleasure. We have stories of drums and horns being utilized to stir emotions of warriors going into battle or preparing to defend themselves from the enemy. And yet music took many, many years to evolve to some semblance of where we are now. Ancient Romans had a large musical events, which gave them way, way, way to more spiritual works in the Middle Ages, the common songs and music that were told around fires gave way to hearths, taverns, and the courts of nobility, 
And its subtle changes into a real formula of that could be expressed as a time signature and could be written down. It's kind of a marvel. And so all over the world, after this, music becomes more accessible to people and cultures around the world. And doing so became more and more a part of their lives. Now we fast forward past all these other amazing times to one of a truly remarkable achievement, and that's the audio recording. Being able to record music meant that it could travel, both in time and space, and often still does, with radio and television television transmissions that are still traveling the universe today. And here's where we stop. And so why does music inspire people? It's an interesting thought that music can inspire you to do something. And if we know anything about music history and the law, it's that music doesn't make anyone do anything. But it can motivate and inspire people to do things, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and sometimes literally nothing at all. But from my perspective, music should have an effect on you. I think that's my definition of good music. Now, sometimes these effects are positive. Obviously, sometimes they could be negative as well. They could bring you up to a super high, dance around, bang your head, rave, those types of heights. Much, much elevated. But conversely, it can bring you down to moody, dark, negative places that can really do a number on folks. And of course, there's a lot of in-between to accommodate just about every human emotion. And why does it? <laughs> now, I'm no expert by any means at all. But I think that music can condition us. We listen to a lot of music every day. And doing that with just about anything. From waking up to music, you're taking a shower, or driving, working, relaxing, or even going to sleep. It's a part of our daily lives for just about the whole day for some of us. And as it's a soundtrack to our life, it's natural to associate music with a feeling. Maybe this plays a part to some of it. But I like to think that the music itself is the main part of it. The loud driving beat with a crank guitar certainly doesn't lend itself well to sleeping at all. But it does make one feel amped or pumped or excited. The same uh, soulful blue song won't make you excited, but will certainly stir a deep feeling inside of you. And so how does it inspire me? Now, I use music kind of like a spice on a food. I use it to kind of enhance what I do. <laughs> Performance-enhancing drug, if you will. I feel like Pavlov's dog in a lot of ways. <laughs> so Frank Sinatra always kind of has a soothing way of being something I listen to when I just want to have a great laid-back feeling. You know, a lot of that Rat Pack type scene I use to relax and decompress without getting excited or depressed. It's a great baseline to be with that makes me feel good. I listen to a lot of things when I'm flying or vacation or just need to pick me up to get my mind off a lot of stressful things. And when I fly, a lot of times... I'll listen to very specific playlists or specific songs. And it is the Pavlov's dog thing. It conditions me to enjoy the flight. <laughs> and so when I fly, um, there's a lot of 
rituals that I kind of deal with. Music's definitely one of those. And so, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer of sorts. I sometimes delve into depressing things, and there's a world of depressing music out there. From lost love to suffering and even death, there's a song out there to bring you into that way of thinking. For me, I spend the least amount of time listening to that, at least nowadays. When I was younger, this was 50% or more of what I listened to. And I'm sure it made me a more negative person for it. I think it was dangerous as well. And if I listened to one, then I would listen to another. And the downward spiral just kept going. As a kid, it was fun to play in that space. Fun. Use that word lightly. I think we all like to think that we have more trauma in our lives than we really do. And that was a way I deluded myself into believing it. Strange, but true. The same thing can be said about anger and a lot of rock and roll. If it's not about sex, then it's about that. Anger at someone, some place, a government, whatever else just happened to float on by. Thrash and heavy metal is ripe with this. But as odd as it might sound, <laughs> me and other people use it to focus us. Whether it's the beat that lends itself well to whatever we're doing, like working or working out, that focus is undeniable, even if it does sound like it's a big distraction. Now, I mentioned sex. Well, there's a lot of that music. <laughs> and it can be a turn-on for a lot of people. From rock and rap to pop, R&B, and everything in between, it permeates just about every genre. Now, sometimes music can certainly put people in the mood, if you will. One of the most used words in music is the term of endearment, baby. And just listen for it. And you'll hear it just about everywhere. Now, worship music is a way that we can tap into that spiritual aspect of ourselves. As a man of God and an honest one at that, trying to be, singing in church or religious music in general, hasn't usually done that much for me. You know, In fact, as a kid, I used to make up alternative lyrics in church and sing them as a parody of sorts. And yeah, I would sing and try to get away with it. And more often than not, most people didn't hear them. But um, there have been a few times where somebody caught wind of what I might have said. And it wasn't disrespectful to anyone in particular or uh, sacrilegious. At least the intent wasn't. I think I do that with just about every song I hear. And um, you could say I enjoyed it a little bit more in church. Um, my kids kind of do the same thing, not in church, but with music in general. But, you know, the interesting thing about worship music is I nowadays, much more nowadays, I feel like it helps me be better connected with God. The singing in church part, not the making fun of it. <laughs> Well, it's not a true way of prayer, according to some people. In some ways, I feel like it is. Now, the younger version of me wouldn't get it, but nowadays I do. And I still can't get over how many so songs we have to sing. It's like seven songs of service. My voice gets hoarse after a while, especially since I've only usually been awake for an hour or so early in the morning. I haven't eaten or drink, um, maybe a couple sips of coffee. It's a little rough on the voice. And in all honesty, I've slipped back into a few replacement lyrics of my daughter, and I've gotten a grin from her. 
here and there. And hopefully she doesn't pick up all of my bad habits. <laughs> and really thankful that Conan isn't there with me because we are always messing up the lyrics of songs all the time. So where else does music find itself in life? You know, just wandering around, you'll find a lot of music in nature and life in general. As a musically inclined person, I often find I'm hearing the rhythm of life in a variety of things. Working in the IT field, I can often find a rhythm in things like printers, <laughs> computers, clocks, or other things. And it's kind of odd, but sometimes I'll find myself humming or mimicking these rhythms like a song that you just can't get out of your head. Yeah, and of course, if you go outside and you hear the animals, you'll hear certain rhythms or music too. One of the more memorable things from my childhood was bird songs like Bob White's Crows or others that kind of echoed throughout the days and nights. In watching movies sometimes, I'll kind of pay attention to the details. I'll hear a certain bird song and I'll be like, hey, I know that bird, even though I'm not a bird watcher. But sometimes it kind of gives credibility to a movie. Or sometimes not, if it's used in the wrong place. But just about everywhere you go, there's a rhythm to be heard. Sometimes you just have to turn off the music, ironically, to actually hear it. You know, it's an odd <laughs> juxtaposition, to be sure. Um, so where did I... Where did I begin with music? I don't know if it's an interesting story, but I'm going to try and tell it anyway. I think as a kid, um, I, I listened to things that my parents would, would play, you know, early days. You know, my dad would listen to things like um, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, um, America, the band. <laughs> Um, various different kind of California folk rock from the 70s. But on the flip side, you know, he would listen to things that kind of bridge that gap like the Eagles and then things that were completely over, over the side from that, like Jimi Hendrix, uh, Black Sabbath, um, all kind of Led Zeppelin, you know, all kinds of, the, the classic heavy metal rock and roll. Um, Led Zeppelin was, was pretty prominent for a long time. Black Sabbath, maybe not so much. And Dad really had a, had a, a, a place in his heart for all kinds of music, especially that type of stuff. I think, you know, his time in Vietnam and... Whenever we lived in California, some of that just kind of, it rubbed off on him. And my mother, she would listen to, I don't know if she had a, a particular type of music she really liked. I would hear her sing snippets from things from the 60s and 70s, like um, Janis Joplin. You know, Lord, would you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? I was like, confused, but I was like, okay. <laughs> and since we lived in the South, um, you know, her being from Pennsylvania, 
she would listen to a lot of things that were country music. I, I guess, you know, when in Rome, all that type of thing. And some of it I really didn't like. And then some of it I, I kind of did. Um, and even to this day, I like some of the classic country, outlaw country, or just the the absolute classics, you know, from the 50s and 60s or or whatever. But we had a satellite dish. Yeah, I think, you know, for the early 80s, we were doing okay. Um, and satellite dishes were, eh, you know, kind of common-ish, sort of, for some people. But we had MTV. And that was the biggest musical influence that I ever had. <laughs> MTV, not a sponsor. But for me, MTV, uh, you know, I was probably six or seven or, or so watching MTV. And there was a lot of newer things coming out that, you know, you wouldn't hear on the radio stations growing up in the South. You know, you would hear essentially what was the, the 80s musical revolution all throughout the 80s and then into the 90s. And for some reason, we just watched it, me and my sister, pretty much all the time, it seemed like. So the the music and the video itself, you know, was like a it's like a short story. Real short stories. You know, like three, two, four minutes, maybe, maybe a little longer. And they were just they were out of this world. And one of my favorites was uh, Hugh Lewis in the news in the beginning. I also liked the police, but I was, I was a big fan of just pop music in general in the early eighties. A lot of it was just really, really cool. And as time went on, I kind of became more of a fan of the hard rock, heavy metal. And it wasn't something that I was following, uh, a fad or a trend that was happening at my school. Quite the opposite. Um, you know, I think I was one of the few that were, few that was my age that was actually listening to that type of thing. And so Van Halen was a big part of that. And then the hair metal bands of 86 and 87 that kind of came out of the gates. And I found myself just fascinated with guitars. Guitars were amazing. Uh, the things that those people were doing just blew my mind. And so I I felt like I wanted a guitar. <laughs> and um, it didn't happen. You know, I just, you know, music was not really in the cards for me. Although around that age or before, um, my parents did notice that that I'd had a musical gift. And they tried to put me in front of a piano because that was, I guess that was the thing. And um, I, I liked the piano. I liked playing music on it, you know, just banging away and whatnot. But I, I don't think I uh, I really liked the piano itself. And I think I'd ask for a guitar and just was like, why? <laughs> um, you know, that, that kind of baffled your parents aren't quite into whatever it was that you were talking about. 
uh, and very lax to, to get me a piano in the first place. But um, we saved up some money and some pennies and change or whatever, and we got this dilapidated old piano. And from my recollection, I think it was like really, really old, like maybe 100 years, something like that. I don't know how it got to the house. Now, growing up now, I know how heavy a piano is and how moving it's a, it's rough. Um, yeah, I was kind of surprised, but it was fun. Um, I played on it a lot, but I didn't really have lessons, which was kind of a pain. Um, I tried to teach myself to read music, and for a while I think I did, but it just, it wasn't, <laughs> the piano was dead to me you know, compared to what was going on for the music I wanted, you know, you had Guns and Roses, you had all the stuff, um, yeah, it, it just wasn't the same, and, you know, it wasn't anywhere close to the Van Halen-ish guitar stuff that I was hearing, and, um, yeah, and, and I think at some point my, my sister got a guitar, and I don't know how or why, <laughs> And um, we didn't know how to do anything with it. It was just like, oh, you, you, you make this motion and hit the strings and stuff like that, and you know, instant rock star. Of course, that wasn't the case. And at some point, she stopped playing it. And then um, I got a job, and uh, I talked my mom into getting me a payment plan on a guitar, and it was a Strat type thing was a K guitar. It was a K Stratocaster like guitar. It was like blue metallic flake. It, it wasn't, didn't look like the, uh, the guitars that I was looking at, you know, but it was kind of close, you know, it kind of matched it a little bit. And, um, that kind of started off this, this whirlwind type of music for me for, for years. And, I would I'd get some <laughs> I'd get some guitar magazines and I'd I would look at these lessons that were clearly over my head and try to come up with certain things and I I did learn some stuff and I'm I'm banging away on my guitar and I've got this little practice amp and it doesn't sound anywhere close to what I think it should sound like and so it was summer, had my windows open, and this guy comes into my room. And I'm like, it's in this middle of summer. I'm here by, I'm at home by myself. And this guy comes in my room, and <laughs> he's somebody that I'd grown up with, but I hadn't seen him in years. He's got long hair, and he, it's it's so weird. He comes in with a distortion pedal. It's a Boss HM2 uh, distortion pedal, which is a classic was eventually a classic at that point in time. And he says, here, use this. <laughs> and he gives me another patch cable and he plugs it up for me and hits it. And he just walks out and leaves. And I'm just like, what? And then I I hear this sound coming out of my guitar and it was amazing. Yeah. You know, it was like the Holy grail. And so immediately in my mind, I'm like, I need to be around this dude. <laughs> I need to, he obviously knows something, you know, if it was a religious experience, you know, it was like, like this is Jesus and I'm an apostle now, 
Um, yeah, I say that completely tongue in cheek, but it was just, it was wild. And he opened up my, my mind to, you know, all this other music and, and things. And it really changed my life. And so for a long time, I, I did all kinds of stuff with guitar, but I, I was never, I never really kind of locked it down and, and went somewhere with it because, you know, I'm living in the middle of nowhere. Didn't have the internet. Um, didn't really have a big scene with, you know, other rock people. And, you know, there was nothing happening where it was. And in some ways I felt like I was stranded on some kind of deserted Island <laughs> with hardly anything and time and other stuff got its way with me. And then at some point in the future, I kind of got into it more and then it kind of left. And that happened several times. And um, I would say it was probably just after Conan was born, like a year or two later, that I was like, you know, I want to start playing guitar again. You know, I've, I'm making more money now. I, I could afford to do this. You know, I just kind of want to dip my feet in the waters. And it's been several years later, and whew, man, I've spent way too much on guitar. Um, but at the same time, you know, I really enjoy learning at this point. You know, there is the internet, and whatever time I, I do dedicate to it is is something interesting to me. Um, and I'm really passionate about it. And one of the other things that I... I didn't have, you know, for a long time, you know, I played in little bands here and there, but, um, nothing consistent, but you know, it's hard to find a good drummer. <laughs> so I joke with my wife that, um, we'll make one. <laughs> and so for the last, I think it's about a year, year and a half now, um, Conan's been going to drum lessons. Um, probably just maybe not quite a year and a half. And he's, he's really into it. I, I wouldn't say that he's, um, he plays it all the time or every day, but he's learning. And so we go every week and it makes me a, a better player knowing that, you know, he's going to be a better player. And now Sophie is playing saxophone too. Um, she has been for probably a little over a year now. And so, yeah, music's kind of invaded the family. And Julie's birthday was not too long ago, and I got her a full-sized keyboard, weighted keys, really nice um, rolling piano. And um, she's been playing that, too. And I find that music is everywhere in my life now. And it's been really, really cool. And it inspires me a lot. In in that way, I'm inspiring my family and my kids too.
some of the other things that have <laughs> happened around the house is um, Conan and I have kind of bonded over a band <laughs> and we're singing songs and slowly I'm, I'm kind of introducing him to my music because we spent a lot of time in the truck, in the car, um, kind of in the mornings and other times during the day. And it's been fun. And probably the biggest band out there that we listen to the most that really resonates with him is ACDC. You know, the the lyrics aren't too over the top or sexually explicit. Um, the songs are not that complicated, so to speak. Um, and it's just a classic band with classic music that really just kind of works really well. <laughs> and so, <laughs> well, let me just explain how his drum teacher works. So in the beginning for kids like his age or whatever, there's two drum sets. And so there's one the instructor sits at, and then there's the one that the student sits at. Now they're both electric. And except for the cymbals, the cymbals are these practice cymbals. And they've got these holes cut in them, so they're not really loud, but you still have that tactile feel of you know, hitting them and the nuance that you can get out of them. And so they kind of play together. And it kind of helps to kind of get in sync, so to speak, with the beat. And he can see what's going on. And they just have a good time. And so for for Conan, it, it's he's, he's enjoying it. He's starting to make the moves and, and try to get in that headspace, if you will. And it's pretty neat. But... Um, what they do is is they have like four or five, six, seven songs, whatever ends up being 30 minutes in time. And so he'll request these songs. And so these are the songs that he likes. And some of them are newer songs that I've introduced him to, and some of them are, are classics. So <laughs> one of the songs is Thunderstrike by ACDC, although it's really known as Thunderstruck. Um and he, he really gets into the song and he and he kind of feels it and he knows it. And Conan has this this thing where he starts snapping his fingers and he's like So he's kind of like his own little metronome. You know, he's he he's kind of playing the beat and he'll I think either he's watched me do this where I'll kind of smack my thighs to the beat and sometimes he'll do the same thing, and I've noticed him doing that. Um, it's it's really cool. It's cool to have, you know, your son be really into rock and roll like you are. And um, I don't know. It's 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 kind of beautiful that you kind of share the love of of the same thing. You know, it's it's kind of hard to relate to kids nowadays. You know. Pokemon or this or that, you know, especially that age group that, you know, they're, they might not be in the same kind of games that you want or whatever, or conversely, if you're a younger person and 
wanting to bond with your your parents or whatever, some of the things that they're into could just be weird or just not what you're into. So to, to be able to to bond and, and be inspired by the same thing is is pretty awesome. And I think Conan enjoys that. So we're riding around the truck saying, you know, are you ready? Are you ready for a good time? You know, ACDC stuff. And um, <laughs> sometimes we're making up the lyrics, you know, messing around with them. Um, or, you know, or we're taking this song and changing up the lyrics completely into something silly or stupid or whatever, um, making fun of something or just making something stupid happen. Um, it's, it's really, really kind of cool. And, um, it's something that we share quite a bit and I'll hear him saying stuff, you know, like him singing a song here and there, (laughs) or he'll tell me, he's like, daddy, let's play the hell song. I was like, highway to hell. Yeah. So he's singing the lyrics. He's trying to. And um, sometimes like, I I just know he doesn't get it. For example, um, are you ready by ACDC? You know, it kind of starts off with this call and response. Are you ready? Are you ready for a good time? You know, and then it, (laughs) it segues into the opening chorus. You know, it's like reverse. And he says, Sweet apple pie standing on the streets. (laughs) And so I'm kind of tossed back to my childhood where, like, I remember hearing lyrics of songs and it just not making sense. It didn't really, I didn't understand it, but I I, I sang it anyway. And a lot of times I just didn't didn't care. It was just like, okay, that's what they're singing about. And so my son's not getting the, the sexual illusion that sweet apple pie is some girl standing on the street, um, <laughs> all this other stuff. And part of me is like thinking like, does he really think the song's about sweet apple pie? I mean, does he like, he's like, are you ready for a good time? Good time means a slice of apple pie. And it's like, hmm, I have to wonder, you know, I'm not, and I'm not going to force the question on him. <laughs> At least I don't think I will, um, to ask him what he thinks that song's about. But I would suspect that he'd be like, yeah, they like apple pie. Somebody's on the side of the street selling it or something like that. I'm like, wow. <laughs> and, it, and it's strange um, because I, I know where he is mentally. You know, I would listen to stuff like Purple Rain by Prince and, you know, or um, When Doves Cry. And I was just like, you know, I didn't get it. I didn't get that, you know, it was about emotional problems and you know fighting and stuff like that it was just like uh, dubs crying hmm. i didn't know that maybe they do well, that's interesting um so yeah i'm like well um or <laughs> um a- another good one you could listen to the news i want a new drug i don't know what he i thought he was saying but i don't think he was talking about having a new drug. I don't think he was talking about a drug. <laughs> you know, 
I want to do something. I don't know. But I was like, no, eh, not too bad. Or the Rolling Stones, anything about the Rolling Stones. I'm not sure if I understood half of what they were saying. Um, you know, plenty of music like that. And it's just like once you start hearing the lyrics for what they really are, you're like, oh, man, I was listening to this at five, six, seven years old. The hell were my parents thinking? <laughs> and that's the thing, you know, you don't some, sometimes like even nowadays, like I still don't understand the lyrics and I'm just like, I don't know. Um, I'll give you a prime example. So uh, I'm a Motley Crue fan somewhat, at least some of the older stuff. And so there's a, a song called Wild Side and there's all kinds of lyrics in it. Um, like he says something about, I carry my crucifix under something. And I've looked up this lyric, I don't know how many times, and I always forget what he's saying, but it, it sounds like foreign gibberish. And I, and I'm still not sure. Um, there's just all kinds of stuff like that, that it's like, this music is, is awesome. You know, it's makes you feel good. makes you feel pumped. And the lyrics might take you somewhere, but I think it does something different for all of us. For some of us, it's it takes me down here. Some of it might take me over here. Really, really, really <laughs> bizarre. But there's also the opposite end of music and lyrics where somebody screws up something for you. Tell you the Jim Hendrix story. Don't hate me for it, please. Maybe I've said this on this channel before, but I think it bears repeating in this episode. Um, <laughs> kiss this uh, uh, purple haze. That's it. Purple haze by Jim Hendrix. Um, it, one of the parts of the song, he says, "Excuse me while I kiss the sky," and it's like, dude, that's deep kiss the sky. It's like, yeah, he was on drugs during that point in time. Hallucinogenics, LSD. Yeah, that's probably what was going on. And then I heard this guy talk about misheard lyrics and how it ruined the song for him. And it ruined the song for me too. And so I'm going to ruin it for you too. Uh, I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. I, I love the guy. <laughs> but I swear that this is probably the worst thing ever. He thought that it said, excuse me while I kiss this guy. And I was like, no, <laughs> he can't do that. And um, sure enough, every time I hear purple haze, that's what I think of. And I'm just like, okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's, it's hysterical. Um, and um, you know, as a kid, I was always making up my own lyrics anyway. So maybe part of me is just jealous that somebody else got to that part on its own. Um, you know, nowadays, I think there's a, well, there is a Weird Al Yankovic um, movie that is out. And it, it kind of goes into you know, his life story and whatnot. And I'm not going to say that Weird Al didn't inspire me, but I feel like even at an early age, I was always making fun 
of songs and kind of rewriting stuff, but that could be a, what do they call it? The Mandela effect where you think one thing and it actually didn't happen. Um, but needless to say, I've, it's always kind of been part of who I am and maybe it was inspired by Weird Al, but Weird Al is definitely one of those great people in the music industry where it's like, it's funny. It really is. Um, but he's still a good musician. You know, he really, you know, he's, he's kind of like who, I think we all have a, a piece of Weird Al in us. I think whether we, uh, whether we admit to it or not. So I've got a friend of mine who um, we're kind of in the same business. Well, actually we're in the same business, um, different companies, but same type of business. And uh, he's a professional blues guitarist has been for a long time. And it's, it's been super cool to, you know, whenever we've gone to conferences together and, um, he ends up playing gigs because he he does. He's that guy. He if he's traveling somewhere, he's going to book a gig, <laughs> and rightfully so because he's an amazing musician. But um, it's been cool. I've I've had the opportunity and the privilege to see him twice, and it's been really really awesome. Um, you know, growing up, I didn't have access to live music, um, not outside of like once a year high school musical talent show type of thing um, it just didn't happen. So watching live music was an expensive, long drawn out odyssey to somewhere to, to do that. And so growing up and moving out of the South and well, that part of the South moving to places where I could hear bands and whatnot has been really um, it's, it's been really different for me. Um, you know, I'm not to say that, like, I want to go to all these different concerts and whatnot because I feel like um, maybe I'm kind of a music stop now. Like, just because somebody broke out a guitar and some some music isn't really going to do it for me. Like, like, they need to be at a higher level, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but um, my buddy, he's he's at an amazingly high level. He does some, some really awesome stuff. Um, and, and watching two of his shows now have, have been, you know, big changes for me. You know, do I want to do what he does? Mm, maybe, I guess in some way, but strictly for fun, not for, um, not to actually make a living at it or, or whatnot, it would it would definitely be something more of like 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 we're gonna have fun with this, we're gonna enjoy this, that type of deal. And so I think music for me is kind of in that sacred position of you know I don't want to turn it into anything that resembles money because I don't want to destroy what it is to me, you know, in in that way. And the more I know about the music industry. It can kind of be that way as well. And so for some of some of the music industry, I just don't want to know. It's like some parts I do, but sometimes I, I don't. And I, and I think that's where 
the crazy things that people do in music kind of gives it that legend type of feel that like like these are these people aren't real <laughs> you know and the reality of it is that that they are so real and that's why these things these stories come out that are just like wow you, you know it's like the truth is is far stranger than fiction type of thing and um yeah i i think i'd just rather keep music sacred and be on this side of it but i, I do want to create my own music and sometimes i do but it's kind of like my own artwork I'm not, you know, I don't create it for somebody else to look at or listen to. It's it's really, ironically, <laughs> not meant for anybody else but for me. Um, which is kind of a weird type of excuse, I guess. Or just the reality of things. And what else? Um, man, I don't even know. If my music or my uh, editing software doesn't catch the music that's playing in the background, my daughter's actually playing the piano right now. And, um, yeah, I'm kind of proud. I'm proud that I've been able to pass on whatever my musical gift is and that Maybe they'll turn it into something where where I didn't, you know. And it's okay. Maybe maybe they'll be rich and famous and one day they'll buy me a, a Tesla or a new guitar or something. But they are they're my immortality. And it really makes me feel good that they are continuing something that I never quite finished. You know, I started the music, but they'll keep playing it. And maybe they'll finish it. I don't know. But it's... The things that inspired me inspired them. And now they inspire me. And it's kind of weird, I guess. But I think that's that's what music in general is. Um, yeah, it tells a story. And the people that hear it, sometimes they repeat the same story and add a little bit more to it. Maybe they create their own story, their own music, and keep going. The other thing about music history that you probably know is that Nothing is really totally new. It's all derivative of each other. And you know, there's this trail of history that you can see in music that, you know, modern rock kind of goes to the 60s or 70s or kind of goes to the 40s or 50s. And it just keeps going back and back and back. And all of these things inspired each other. And so there's this trail of custody, if you will, 
these musical ideas that, that went somewhere. And that's where we're at. And as they say, the beat goes on and the piece of history goes on. So the last part of this episode, I wanted to take a moment and um, talk about something else that's happened to me. And it's not really music related at all. But my, uh, my father, Howard Greenman, he passed away recently. And so this last part's about me and, and him. And maybe about you too, if you can learn something from it. But I want to be clear on something. My podcast doesn't feel like I didn't really have a father growing up, I guess. Maybe you can get that from the name, I guess. And to a certain extent, sometimes it maybe it appears true, you know, in some of these episodes. But the reality of it is that, you know, I had a great father. He did an amazing job on me, whether by mistake or on purpose. You will never really know. But in that role, he did a good job, great job. And you just asked my family. But either way, I always wanted a better relationship with my dad. And in my later years, I had it. But just like the song Cats in the Cradle, our lives mirrored that song very closely. And every relationship is different. And I wish ours was. But this is what's the nature of life. We wish things were different after the fact in so many cases. And my dad was born in 1940 on the beach in Florida. Of all the places in life that he went, he didn't end up in the exact same place, but somewhat close. And for most of my life, I thought of him as the world traveler he was and never really thought that Florida was really a home to him until later on. And there was a lot that I know about him now that were foreign to me growing up. And as much as he would talk about his past, there was still an immense world locked away there that I never had the privilege of knowing. And in my defense, I didn't really know to ask. In his defense, he probably didn't know that I was interested in all of that. But then again, there are so many things that he did that once he was done with them, he was done. He didn't care to talk about them or do them again. It was like a book he lived and wrote but would never read again. And later, later on, just threw him away. Being born during World War II, he was cut from a far different cloth than most of us. His father was in the Navy, and his mother was a homemaker. They were both kind of strict, but I understand that was kind of the norm back then for most folks. He started his Navy career born into it. He ended up in Guam right after the war. And then after a few years, ended up back in Florida for high school. But he went right back in the Navy again. And he was in the Navy right up until I was about five years old. In that time, he visited every continent. Had a storied Navy career. But of all things, ended up back in Florida. But even at that point, he wasn't done with anything. <laughs> he worked for a nuclear plant for a few years, started a career in law enforcement, eventually becoming the captain of the sheriff's department in the uh, county we lived in. 
And after that, he left and worked for the government. Ended up in Alaska doing electrical engineering. And after that, after I was out of high school, he came back. But he still wasn't retired all the way. <laughs> Not by a long shot. He ended up being an electrical engineer, an instructor for the state of Florida, and finally retired for the third time, as he put it. And after that, I think he finally was content not to have a schedule. Although, honestly, I think the lack of schedule was kind of the catalyst that took him from us earlier than we thought. Yeah, it could have been that he got shot multiple times, taking shrapnel from various explosions, and all the mileage he put on. But I like to think he's lived a full life. One of the things he told me was that he didn't want to pull up to the finish line all of life all clean and pristine without a scratch on him. But rather on fire and burned up. <laughs> Crashing and rolling over the finish line completely spent. And I'm thankful it didn't happen exactly that way. He passed in his sleep on an afternoon in September of this year. Relaxed in his favorite easy chair. Content with life, I guess. And he was looking forward to seeing me and my wife and kids in a few days. We were going to see him in two days on vacation. And while that didn't happen, I bet it was a nice place for him to be sitting there, relaxed and at peace, looking forward to something. Now, I don't have the last will and testament in front of me at the moment, but his thoughts that he wanted everyone to know was that he was not a man of faith. He didn't believe in a higher power, but he said he was interested in reincarnation and thought it was fascinating. And he had a dog named Cleo once that he swore was a soul from another era. And while I can't attest to that, I can say that she was an amazing companion to him and certainly was smarter than the average dog. He went on to say he didn't believe life continued or there was an afterlife. He thought of life as a movie that when your life ended, there wasn't someone riding off in the sunset, but rather the film gave out and that was the end of the show. Now, as a man of faith myself, it saddens me to have heard this. But it was no surprise, though. He, he wasn't shy of what he called realism. He always professed that he was a realist. And he made jokes of faith and religion, but he was never with the intent to hurt someone's feelings. For me, it was a playful way of having a conversation, you know, that he was going to eat pork for Hanukkah or something like that. He was never really mean or hurtful to people unless they were rude and honestly probably deserving of it. And while I can't condone some of the things he did to these types of people, I certainly understood his point of view and where he was coming from. He didn't ever really want violence. At least I don't think so. But he definitely wouldn't go out of his way to avoid it. The gunslinger attitude that he'd had over the years in the generation that he grew up in only bubbled up to service more and more the older he got, regardless of whether the fact he wasn't in the military anymore and didn't wear a badge any longer. And I joked to my wife that it seemed a bit strange that he didn't die in a gun battle somewhere, considering what all he did in life. 
was strange, but I'm glad he didn't. I'm thankful for all the time we had together. And, you know, I'm not going to paint the entire picture or write the entire story of his life here. But as an older man, approaching his 50s, I find myself very lucky to have had him in my life for so long. It doesn't make me ponder what life could have been if I'd started family earlier. Like him, I didn't really make it to a true family and kids until my early 30s. <laughs> and I tried. I tried earlier, but God didn't have any of that in my plans then. And you know there's a saying. It's a really great one. If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> oh. You know, if I had kids then, I think he'd been in a great spot. He would have gotten a lot out of them. And they would have been... They would have got a lot out of him. And if I could go back and change that, I doubt it. I wouldn't have the family I do now. I wouldn't give them up for anything. In fact, I'd do anything for them. I mean, what greater task do I have than to serve others? None. There is no greater task. Or what? Or ask. And I think in this way, Dad did that for me. I think that what he did for his grandkids from his last marriage was truly amazing. They loved him so much. They did the same for him. And you could see it in their faces and in their lives. I shared him with them and what he didn't do for my kids in those years between he was able to do for them. And so I'll share this wisdom that I've learned in my lifetime. Don't wait forever to have kids or a family. Whether or not you make them the good old-fashioned way, adopt or marry into what Dad would call a ready-made family, there's never a right time to start a family. Although I admit there's plenty of wrong times to start a family. <laughs> but you'll never, you'll never have what you think is enough of money or the right spot in your career never happen although I would wait until you are somewhat stable financially and in a great relationship I know that sounds like a bit of a contradiction too but we'll tackle that in another episode but yeah don't wait too long others in your family may not have that kind of time and while you want this or that your purpose is to help others. Let them have that relationship as well. It's really hard to deny that. Now, if you're a regular listener of the show, you may recall that I have an almost adult biological son. In that relationship, if you really call it that, it's really it's infancy. And it may not be a relationship at all, as fragile and as new as it is. I messaged him Facebook, which is the only way I can communicate with him, I think. I messaged him right after Dad died, let him know what I was going to be in the area. He never responded. 
I guess that's okay. I mean, I gave him the opportunity. The opportunity's still there. That door will always be open to him as long as I'm around. And it's sad to think that he'll never know his grandfather. Disappointing. But I guess that's how this goes. I mean, there's no precedent or real playbook for this type of relationship. But if there is, man, <laughs> I sure want a copy of it. I mean, maybe one day he'll listen to these episodes and possibly understand me a little more. And by extension, my father. But if you're listening to this show, hopefully you understand. And I hope that it helps you in your life in some way. Maybe you can learn from the things that I've done and haven't done. For my part, my kids didn't have the reaction I thought they would have is death. You know, and I'm only slightly surprised. I mean, they've only seen him, you know, a handful of times. You know, it's, we live like 6,000 some odd miles away. My daughter just seemed numb, I guess. And I was too. And my son had a moment of sadness, and I'll never forget these words, but he said that Grampy Howard can be in heaven smoky. He was sad, and then he said that, and he was truly a little happy. And so Smokey was one of our first cats that died a year or so ago. Poor Conan, he still talks about him and misses him. I think it was his first real exposure to death. And it made me cry for a while whenever he said that. And if only that were true, I thought. If only that were true. The mind of a child is an amazing thing to behold. It's beautiful, in fact. And so I want to celebrate my dad's life more. And tell the kids more about him. I just truly don't know if they're ready for that, though. I had a passion at one point to learn more about my grandfather. Technically, I still do. I never got to see him, but when my grandmother was alive all the way until the end, she was still in love with him and missed him. Dad would talk about him often, too. I felt like I had missed a great person that should have been in my life, but was taken from me somehow. And having never met the man, I still loved him in my own way. Respect, reverence for an elder. And I've wanted a grandfather in my life ever since then, but I've never had one. I think if I celebrate my own dad's life like I want, it'll make me feel a little bit like a hypocrite. Since I didn't have that much to do with him when he was alive. But you know what the hell with that? I'm going to do it anyway. And that feeling of regret but charging forward with it, that's something new to me in the past several years. I feel like some of my emotions were like an anchor holding me back from doing something. Maybe it was regret or self-consciousness or something else like that that gives me pause and not want to do something. And I'll tell you, 
Age and experience will make you believe that that type of thinking is not worth thinking about at all. And dad would agree. He never gave, <laughs> he never cared about that type of thing at all. If he wanted to do something, he was going to do it. If something was going to stop him, it was going to be him. And Conan is like that in a lot of ways. I often feel more reserved in a lot of my dealings. I'm a bit more of a thinker. I think a lot about things. But obviously being a doer is an amazing place to be. Not because of what is possible. Because of what was possible. What I could have done. And having been able to see what I could have done. Should I have been bold enough to do it. I think this comes to mind because I'm the shepherd of the family now. Dad was that. He was always that. Whether we acknowledged it or not in our daily lives, I think we believed it. Or at least I did. I was like the under-shepherd, the apprentice, the lieutenant of things. And now that he's gone, I don't have someone in that position to ask, to confide in, to even remind me of how I was and how far I've come. I'm going to miss that part of him. And even though I've been in that role for some time now, that role of being the shepherd, you know, I just realize it now. <clears throat> if ever there was something that would make you feel like you're not young anymore, this type of thing will do it to you. At least it did it for me. And so I'm going to end with a few takeaways. I don't know if these would be Howard approved, but I'd like to think that that doesn't matter anymore. I'm the shepherd now. Whatever he gave me is... Whatever I say is... The lessons he gave me. But here we go. Life is never guaranteed. If you've ever had to fight for it... In any way... Physically, mentally, or otherwise... You know this is true. And if you still don't believe it, save yourself some time. Go ahead and believe it. Life is never guaranteed. And number two, enjoy your life, but help others enjoy theirs too. Serving others is what life is about. Don't always put your wants above others. Make time for your family, friends, and community. Number three, don't put off things until another day. You're going to find, you probably already know, that another day becomes another day and another day. On that day, it might be too late. And if you don't have a plan, you've got a plan to fail. Number four. Don't be afraid to set up and do what you need to do or want to do. I think that really should be, don't be afraid to step up and do what you want or need to do. Look both ways and then go ahead. It's the saying, I think it's by Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone, one of those guys. 
Look both ways and then go ahead. And I'll tell you, if you're the one that's stopping you, then give yourself permission and go for it. Number five, take care of yourself. This is the one that kills you. If you don't care, take care of yourself, then others can't. And you can't help others. That's all there is to it. And you won't be able to do it for very long. And that's a reminder for me as well. Something that I have to work on. Taking care of yourself. So if I ask my dad right now, what would you say about the, the above? Probably not so many words, but in his own way, he'd get that message that you crossed. Some ways he was as hypocritical as I am. But aren't we all to some degree? And I think that's okay as long as you're working to get beyond. As long as you're making some progress, you're trying, it's okay. We're all not the perfect beings we think we are, or that others think we are. And don't be beat yourself up over it. Just accept it. Keep going. Don't let it become that anchor that stops your boat. Have faith. Believe. And go for it.